Reflections on the Poetry of T.S. Eliot The Wasteland by Gil Bailey Narrated by Gil Bailey and produced by the Cornerstone Forum Part 2 For some reason, we need martyrs. The Greek word martyr means uh, a witness. And uh, witnesses make themselves available for us, uh, revealing things that would otherwise remain hidden and unseen, so that the world uh, has an official group of martyrs, those who have done it at the cost of their lives. Uh, and then there are these uh, sort of um, bumbling bodhisattvas who make manifest to us the nature of the situation in which we live without whom we would not become aware of it. So I'd like to dedicate today's reflections to one such witness that I encountered the other day as I was on my way to, uh, just before I went to Santa Rosa to teach the first class of the week. I was taking a bicycle ride after I had been steeping in Section 2 of the Wasteland and still was steeping in it, took a bicycle ride for exercise out into the country roads and I was going uh, down uh, Leveroni Road, and there on the side of the road was an, a collapsed man in his late 50s. And I stopped, and some other people stopped, and a, uh, uh, an ambulance was called and so on. But he was, con- he was conscious, uh, but there he was. And he was, uh, he had about a two-day growth of beard, nice-looking man. He had beside him a half-empty bottle of very cheap wine and a little bouquet of flowers, which was wrapped in paper, and obviously he had been holding it for some time. The paper was all kind of crunched and weathered as though he had been holding it half a day. And the, and the flowers were leaning up against him. His hands were kind of sprawled out, and the bottle was sitting upright next to him. We asked his name. He said his name was Ed. We asked what he was doing. He said he was on his way to visit his ex-wife. Well, I stood there, having come from Section 2 of the Wasteland, as though uh, the angel of the Lord was appearing to me. I was tempted to go back into the, you know, to begin with Eloise and Abelard and talk about the 11th century France and the Persian influence, and we're going to skip that. What I'm going to do is share with you a couple of quotes, and then we'll, and then we'll turn to T.S. Eliot. The first is from Vladimir Solovyov, a 19th century Russian philosopher who died in 1900, and he wrote this. Metaphysical, physical, historical, and social conditions in human existence modify and mitigate our egoism in all ways, placing powerful and varied obstacles in the way of its manifestation in a pure form and in all its terrible consequences. But all this complicated system of hindrances and correctives, foreordained by providence and realized by natural history, leaves untouched the very basis of egoism, which perpetually peeps out from under cover of our personal and public morality, and on occasion manifests itself with perfect distinctness. There is only one power which can, from within, undermine egoism at its root, and really does undermine it, namely love and chiefly, sexual love. 
The falsehood and evil of egoism consist in the exclusive acknowledgement of absolute significance for oneself and in the denial of it for others. Reason shows us that this is unfounded and unjust, but simply by the facts, love directly abrogates such an unjust relation, compelling us, not by abstract consciousness, but by an internal emotion and the will of life to recognize for ourselves the absolute significance of another. And then the paradox comes into play, which is always comes into play in deep truths. Recognizing in love the truth of another, not abstractly, but essentially, transferring, indeed, the center of our life beyond the limits of our empirical personality. We, by so doing, reveal and realize our own real truth, our own absolute significance, which consists just in our capacity to transcend the borders of our factual phenomenal being. Slovyov, in a little book called The Meaning of Love, testifies to the fact that there has been, can be, and ought to be a natural alliance between sexual attraction and religious transformation. That there, in terms that we've talked about here in the past, that the erotic and religious longings need not be hostile to each other. Simone Weil said, longing for the lover is the longing for the incarnation, whether we know it or not. Something, however, has happened in the modern world. <clears throat> Let me quote to you from um, a fellow Tennessean, uh, Joseph Wood Crutch. He wrote of, quote, a society which is at bottom in despair because, though it is more completely absorbed in the pursuit of love than in anything else, it has lost the sense of any ultimate importance inherent in the experience which preoccupies it. Inhabitants of this society, Crutch went on to write, are endeavoring to get what they can in the pursuit of satisfactions which are sufficiently instinctive to retain inevitably a modicum of animal pleasure, but they cannot transmute that simple animal pleasure into anything else. The problem that Eliot is dealing with in Part 2 and beyond in The Wasteland might best be described as the secularization of Eros. What Eliot was really concerned with is the secularization of everything. Uh, but the secularization of Eros is the chief symptom of the secularization of everything. Denis de Rougemont, the French historian, in a book published in English in 1940, I'm not sure when it was written in French, said the present breakdown of marriage is the least misleading indication of a Western decadence. By the way, I've, I've never been I've felt so awkward uh, in giving a Timnos class, hardly ever, than I have this week, because virtually everybody I know has been fairly intimately touched by failed marriages. It's difficult to talk about this as the major symptom of cultural collapse in a world where everybody's had the experience of it but all the more reason to indicate its relevance to our condition. In other words, the chief symptom of our condition is not only staring us in the face, but hitting us, hitting us in the face. And uh, Eliot and others have called attention to it. Not, not for the purpose, primarily, of rendering simply a moral judgment on it, 
but for the purpose of recognizing it as the chief symptom of a much more important spiritual disorder. Eliot consciously chose as the, as the framework for his poem the Grail story, specifically the Wasteland story, which has to do with the Fisher King who is wounded. In most renditions, the wound euphemisms are applied, but it is a wound in the groin. And the inability, King's inability to heal the wound, the festering of that wound, causes a wasteland to ripple out from the palace out into the kingdom itself so that the whole kingdom becomes a wasteland. And all of that is connected symbolically with the wound to the Fisher King, which is a wound that has incapacitated him for regeneration, for the generative act. And Eliot has specifically chosen this myth as the one, the scaffolding on which to hang his poetic uh, depiction of the modern condition. In other words, the modern spiritual disaster has its most blatant symptom in the collapse of the culturally sanctioned fertility rituals in our culture. The central sanctioned fertility ritual in our culture is marriage and those social arrangements that lead up to marriage and surround and sustain marriage. When I think of Eliot, I think of uh, the prophet Hosea who... Uh, and we're not here to talk about the prophet Hosea, but the prophet Hosea experienced the great pain and confusion of his personal life and his marriage, and in that understood the condition of Israel and was able then to speak to Israel of its condition out of the pain and anxiety and confusion of his own life. Eliot, in that sense, is, is a modern Hosea. And also a prophet in the sense that what he chose as the major symptom of the spiritual disorder turned out to be its major symptom. The, uh, the demographics don't show up for 50 years, but he had his finger right on it. This section of the poem is entitled A Game of Chess. And Eliot, tell, Eliot tells us in his notes that he takes that from uh, Thomas Middleton, Middleton's play, Women Beware Women. And in that play, the game of chess is the, is the dominant symbol. The, a, a widow is playing a game of chess in one room while her daughter-in-law is being seduced by the duke in the adjacent room. The seduction scene is, is being described in terms of moves on a chessboard. Meanwhile, the, the game of chess in the parlor is used as a way of distracting the widow from becoming conscious of this, uh, if you will, statutory rape that is taking place in the adjacent room. But <clears throat> rape, not in the sense, not in the, in the technical sense of imposing the sexual act on an unwilling victim, but in the emotionally more subtle sense of sharing the sexual act with an essentially indifferent partner. The title of the section says, Eros in the modern world has become gamesmanship. It has become calculated, self-conscious, emotionally inept, and uh, reduced to something banal. 
a game. I think it was Santayana who said, when we lose sight of the ends, we'd redouble the means. What happens at the beginning of this section of the poem is that we are brought into a dressing room in which a woman is sitting at the dressing table with all of the elaborate accoutrements of beauty, design, uh, to enhance beauty in order to evoke erotic sentiment. In other words, this is, the, this is the technology of love. We're introduced into the technology of love, or it's the attempt on the part of these technologies to awaken love. So the means, the focus is now on the means, now that, as I would suggest, now that the ends, the, the larger, deeper meaning of all of that attractiveness has been lost, the focus becomes on the surface of things. And so Eliot begins with a scene in which it's the cosmetics that uh, have become the concern. The chair she sat in like a burnished throne glowed on the marble. Well, we recognize that from Ina Barbus's description of Cleopatra. Uh, Ina Barbus is trying to tell the, the dim-witted Romans these Romans, you see, they can't even imagine what, what would have made a great general like Antony uh, go weak in the knees. And Enobarbus is trying to convey to them some secondhand something of what it was. <laughs> and, of course, it, it's hard to convey in words unless you're Shakespeare. And Enobarbus said to them, The barge she sat in like a burnished throne burned on the water. The poop was beaten gold, purple the sails, and so on and so forth. He's describing Cleopatra coming down the Nile. The strongest of echoes of that. Nothing, nothing subtle here. The chair she sat in, like a burnished throne, glowed on the marble, where the glass, held up by standards wrought with fruited vines from which a golden cupidon peeped out, another hid his eyes behind his wing, doubled the flames of seven-branched candelabra. We'll come back to these lines. We'll go through it slowly, but... Notice the uh, phrase, held up by standards. Uh, we're talking about, there's a little comical pun here. We're talking about holding up standards. This is a, this is a survey of the modern condition. It's the glass, that is to say the mirror, propped in front of this woman at her dressing table that is held up by standards. And these are new standards. And they are holding up a mirror. And notice that the, the mirror is held up by standards wrought with fruited vine, namely Bacchus, the Bacchanalian standards, the vines, the grapevine. New standards held up by standards wrought with fruited vines, from which a golden cupidon peeped out. Another hid his eyes behind his wing. And notice the, these are cupid figures. Now notice the cupid figures uh, have, have an ironic relationship to this scene. One is peeping out, and one is hiding his eyes behind his wing. Embarrassed by the scene, which he is 
called upon to serve as accolade for, if you see what I mean. So the Cupid figures are somewhat chagrined at things having gotten to this state. But they play another role, these Cupidons play another role, because remember the glass is the subject of this sentence so far, where the glass upheld by standards wrought with fruited vines of from which a golden cupidon peeped out, another hid his eyes behind his wing, doubled the flames of seven-branched candelabra, reflecting light upon the table as the glitter of her jewels rose to meet it from satin cases poured in rich profusion. Seven-branched candelabra is the menorah. So we have an echo here of, I think, Exodus chapter 25, which describes the furnishings for the temple of Jerusalem. Now the furnishings include the menorah and all the rest of it. But I just read a few little phrases from Exodus 25. Yahweh is speaking to Moses. You are to make an ark of acacia wood, pure gold, decorated around with gold molding. And you are to fashion a mercy seat or a throne of mercy. For the two ends of this throne of mercy, you are to make two golden cherubs. See the echo here with the two cupidons? Two golden cherubs. You are to make them of beaten gold. They must face one another, their faces toward the throne of mercy. Notice Eliot's cupidons. One is peeping out and one is hiding his eyes. Now the throne of mercy, well, Yahweh goes on to say, there on the throne of mercy... I shall come to meet you there from above the throne of mercy from between the two cherubs that are on the ark of the testimony I shall give all my commands to the sons of Israel. So the throne of mercy, the mercy seat is the meeting place between the divine and the human. That is to say, Denny DeRouchemont said there are two religions vying for our allegiance in the modern world, passionate romance and Christianity. In vials of ivory and colored glass unstoppered lurked her strange synthetic perfumes. Now notice, first of all, there's the pun on the word vials. In vials of ivory and colored glass unstoppered, all of these things carry all kinds of resonances, lurked her strange synthetic perfumes. The word synthetic is a giveaway the artificiality of this process. Ungent, powdered, or liquid, troubled, confused, and drowned the sense in odors. What Eliot is doing in his poem, in this part of the poem, is troubling, confusing, and drowning our senses in images. This section of the poem starts to liquefy so that everything begins to blur into everything else. And pretty soon we can't really, all we have is just a, we're just awash in senses. Stirred by the air that freshened from the window, these ascended in fattening the prolonged candle flame, flung their smoke into the laqui area, stirring the pattern on the coffered ceiling. We have another literary association with laqui area. Eliot notes it in his notes which is book one of the Aeneas, of the Aeneid. 
in which Dido is falling in love, passionately falling in love with Aeneas. He has clued us in where to join the text. And the word laquiaria is the Latin word for the for the insets in a, in a louvered, pa- louvered ceiling, uh, ceilings with rich panel. So if we simply, he has keyed us into that text. So if we go to that text and find the word laquiaria in its first manifestation in the text and read the next line, the next line is, and flaming torches overcome the night. Therein lies the motive of all of this. To discover the flames and the torches that will help us overcome the night. That's what Eros has become in the modern world. A flaming torch designed to help us overcome the night. The room has liquefied on us. The images have liquefied. Huge sea wood fed with copper, burned green and orange, framed by the colored stone, in which sad light a carved dolphin swam. In the midst of this now liquefied environment, there is this reference to, first of all, acknowledgement that this is sad light. However richly profuse it is and all of these sensations, it's fundamentally sad. And in that sad light, a carved dolphin swam. The dolphin is the figure in classical folklore of a redeemer that who, who, who saves the drowning sailors. Remember, when... Madame Sosostra's hand at each of reached out like this and said, this is your card, the drowned Phoenician sailor. Well, the, uh, the dolphin is the, is the strange figure that comes and saves drowning sailors. And they somehow come up on the back of the dolphin. And Christians converted that into an image of Christ who dives into the waters of death and comes out able to redeem, able to save drowning people. And of course, fear of death by water. Drowning is a baptismal image too. So if you die the death of the baptismal waters, there is a dolphin Christ who will come and bring you back to life. Somewhere in this setting, I would like to suggest, on the wall is a crucifix. And Elliot is much too coy to say there's a crucifix on the wall over there, folks. What he says is, he first of all liquefies the environment. And we've been told, beware of death by water. Don't drown in water. And we're going to drown one way or another. And those who have determined not to drown in water end up drowning in the senses. That is to say, we are awash in all this sense stuff, in which sad light the carved dolphin swam. What I'm trying to communicate is the, is the thing that comes back over and over and over again in Eliot, and that is that that which can redeem us is within arm's reach, but we don't have access to it. In the room, the women come and go talking of Michelangelo. Waldo and Matthew sitting on the shelf. See? And there's more of that in this poem. It's there... But because of our condition, we have no access to it. In which sad light the carved dolphin swam. Above the antique mantle was displayed 
as though a window gave upon the sylvan scene the change of Philomel by the barbarous king so rudely forced. Now, when we talked about uh, Sweeney among the nightingales, we reviewed the story of Philomela, uh, who was transformed into a nightingale. And I want to do that again because Eliot forces us to that. But also notice this now, what above the antique mantle, now the, the word antique is used here with a little spin on it, that is to say it has a, it, it judges. It's antique meaning irrelevant. It, it, that doesn't come in quite yet, but we'll see it in a few minutes. There's a painting above the mantelpiece, which could be a window on this scene, which could actually provide someone in this scene with the tool for recognizing what's happening. Remember what Eliot said in section one. He said, what are the roots that clutch? What branches grow out of this stony rubbish? Son of man, you cannot say or guess, for you know only a heap of broken images. That is to say, we don't have access, access to the resources for understanding our own condition. We can't even understand our condition because that out of the cultural repertoire, which would give us some understanding of where we are and what's happening, we, we regard as irrelevant. So here's a painting above the antique mantle, which could be a window on the scene, but we have no access to it. A window on the sylvan scene. The sylvan scene is out of Milton's Paradise Lost. In Book 4, Paradise Lost, there is a sylvan scene. And the sylvan scene is eaten before the fall with Satan creeping up on. What Milton brings out about this scene is the smell. And so much of what's gone on in this little scene has been the smell. Just a couple of lines from Milton's poem. Gentle gales fanning their odoriferous wings dispense native perfume. That's, that's Eden. That's paradise. Gentle gales fanning their odoriferous wings dispense native perfume. What do we have in this poem? Synthetic perfume. Okay? And then when Satan comes up, he smells it. So entertained those odorous sweets, the fiend who came their bane. So this too is a sylvan scene. But like the inhabitants of Eden, the person in this room is blissfully unaware of what's really taking place at that moment, but could be made aware if they had access to the deeper meaning of the painting over the mantelpiece. And the painting over the mantelpiece is about the change of Philomel by the barbarous king so rudely forced. Procne and Philomel were sisters. Procne married Tyrius. Tyrius, shortly thereafter, developed an eye for Philomel. Tyrius uh, asked, the, asked that Philomel be allowed to come to his kingdom uh, to keep Procne com company, and on bringing her back, he rapes her and cuts her tongue out so she will not tell about the rape, and uh, she, in her seclusion, her forced seclusion, weaves a tapestry in which she depicts what has happened to her, sends it to Procne, Procne decodes it, recognizes it, the two of them meet, join in a bacchanalian frenzy, in the heat of which they go and kill Procne and Tyrius's small son, chop him up, cook him, and feed him to Tyrius for dinner. After which Tyrius learns of it 
and chases Procne and Philomel into the woods, and both of them are changed into, into birds, and Philomel's changed into a nightingale, and sings on uh, eternally. The nightingale's voice has all of this in it. The betrayal, the love, the, uh, the intrigue, the murder. Transformation of Philomel is the, is the transformation of one whose victimization has, has turned her into a child sacrificer. She has now become a child sacrificer. So, above the antique mantle was displayed as though a window gave upon the sylvan scene the change of Philomel by the barbarous king so rudely forced. Yet there the nightingale filled all the desert with inviolable voice, and still she cried. And still the world pursues, notice the tense, present tense, and still the world pursues jug-jug to dirty ears. Jug-jug was the Elizabethan phrase for the sound of the nightingale. In the Elizabethan drama, the nightingale's sound would be jug-jug. In its desperation, the world is still resorting to this pattern for enhancing the emotional significance of Eros. And that is using the triangle, the famous triangle, to inject some energy into it. Jug, jug to dirty ears. We still hear Philomel calling, but totally misunderstand. And uh, so we follow her call, thinking this is love. This is the way. When in fact, if we could recognize what that painting over the antique mantle is saying, we would realize how Satan is creeping over that paradisal wall at this very moment. Even as she sits at her dressing table, the foundation is being laid for all the intrigue and the betrayal and the eventual murder and child sacrifice that that, uh, Philomel stands for and other withered stumps of time were told upon the walls. See, there are all kinds of other paintings on the walls. So, the, the carved dolphin and the picture of the transformation of Philomel, uh, carv- the carved dolphin is inaccessible. The picture is, is antique. And then there are all these other withered stumps of time, these other pieces out of the cultural uh, (laughs) repertoire that are available for giving some hint of what's happening, but they're regarded as irrelevant to the modern condition. And other withered stumps of time were told upon the walls, staring forms, leaned out, leaning, hushing the room enclosed. Notice the, the longing now on the part of the tradition itself, in a way, to communicate its message to this increasingly desperate world. Those withered stumps of time are leaning out. It's a, I think it's marvelous the way Eliot has, has communicated that feeling. Staring forms leaned out, leaning, hushing the room enclosed. And the word enclosed gives another little hint of what's happening there. Closing in. But meanwhile... It's closing in, but what is, all of the riches are right there. If only they could be experienced. Footsteps shuffled on the stair. 
under the firelight, under the brush, her hair spread out in fiery points, glowed into words, then would be savagely still. So this poem is about to glow into words, that is to say, to glow into the words of human speech. But notice what it's saying to us, and then would be, notice the indefinite future, would be savagely still. Easy to confirm this when we come back from where the poem is going to take us, but this is a suicide innuendo. Would glow into words and then would be savagely still. And let's remember Cleopatra and Dido were suicides. And the words are of a woman, a wealthy woman, idle, speaking to her husband or lover. My nerves are bad tonight. Yes, bad. Stay with me. Now notice, she asked him to stay with her wife because she doesn't want to be left alone. That is to say, it is not, remember Eliot said, I will show you fear in a handful of dust, meaning, I think, fear of life. And <clears throat> this is a longing to be with the other for the worst of reasons. That is to say, my nerves are bad and I don't want to be alone. So stay with me. Speak to me. Why do you never speak? Speak. Remember what the man in the hyacinth garden said in section one. Your arms were full, your hair wet, I could not speak, and my eyes failed. I was li neither living nor dead, and I knew nothing. Well, all the men in this poem are the same person. All the women in this poem are the same person. And all of them are Tiresias. So this is a poem about everybody. And the men in this poem have this condition. Speak to me, she says. Why do you never speak? Speak! What are you thinking of? What thinking? What? I never know what you are thinking. Think. And he says, I think we are in Rat's Alley where the dead men lost their bones. <laughs> a little bit of that would go a long way. <laughs> and what he thinks is that we are in Rat's Alley where the dead men lost their bones. That is to say, the situation is utterly hopeless. Here's a quote from the 37th chapter of Ezekiel. The hand of Yahweh was laid on me, and he carried me away by the spirit of Yahweh and led me down to the middle of a valley, a valley full of bones. I think we are in Rat's Alley where the dead men lost their bones. He made me walk up and down among them. There were vast quantities of these bones on the ground the whole length of the valley, and they were quite dried up. He said to me, Son of man, can these bones live? I said, you know, Lord Yahweh. He said, prophesy over these bones. Say, dry bones, hear the word of Yahweh. The Lord Yahweh says this to these bones. I am now going to make the breath enter you. The breath is ruach, the, the Hebrew word ruach, which means spirit. Panuma in Greek. 
I'm going to make the breath, the spirit, enter you, and you will live. I shall put sinews on you. I shall make your flesh grow. I shall cover you with skin and give you breath, that is to say, wind, spirit, and you will live, and you will learn that I am Yahweh. I prophesied as I had been ordered. While I was prophesying, there was a noise, a sound of clattering, and the bones joined together. I looked and saw that they were covered with sinews. Flesh was growing on them and skin was covering them, but there was no ruah, no breath, no spirit in them. He said to me, prophesy to the ruah, to the wind, to the spirit. Prophesy, son of man, say to the spirit, to the wind, to the breath, say this, the Lord Yahweh says this, come from the four winds, breathe, breathe on these dead, let them live. I prophesied as he had ordered me, and the breath, the spirit, the ruah, entered them, the wind entered them, and they came to life again and stood up on their feet. I never know what you are thinking. Think. I think we are in Rat's Alley where the dead men lost their bones. What is that noise? The wind under the door. What is that noise now? What is the wind doing? Nothing again. Nothing. You see that? And there is this fabulous Dantean thing that we talked about last week. The sin and the punishment are the same thing. The sin is the, the sin against the Holy Spirit. The refusal of the spirit of life. The rejection of the spirit of life. Moses says, choose life. And slamming the door in, the, in resistance to that wind, you see, the wind is on the other side of the door. And, and it is the wind, the ruah, the spirit, that can bring those dead bones back to life. And when it begins to do so, it makes a little noise, says Ezekiel. And she says, what is that noise? So that the very source of rebirth is now regarded as hostile. See, that means we better insulate that door. We better, you know, cover up the cracks because we can now, it's coming in under the door. What is that noise? The wind under the door. It's coming in. What is that noise now? Note, what, a, what a wonderful way of indicating the anxiety of the situation. See, immediately asking the question, what is that noise now? See, was there a little change? Is something happening? What's going on here? What is that noise now? What is the wind doing? Nothing. Again, nothing. It's not doing the door has been effectively shut on the spirit. So the question is, what is the wind doing? There's only one source of life, and that's life. That's the spirit of life. And if it is doing nothing, then nothing is happening. So what is the wind doing? He says the wind is doing exactly nothing again. Nothing. Do you know nothing? Do you see nothing? Do you remember nothing? That is to say, if the wind is not coming in, if the wind has no access to, 
to that life, if it can't bring new life the way it did in Ezekiel, then nothing's happening. So she says, do you know nothing? Do you see nothing? Do you remember nothing? Now, this is psychology 101. You say, first of all, do you know nothing? Well, do you know anything? If not, next question is, what do you see? Let's just what open your eyes. What do you see? Do you see anything? And if that doesn't lead anywhere, then you say, okay, then what do you remember? This is your basic psychological probing into the depth. Do you know nothing? Do you see nothing? Do you remember nothing? And he knows nothing and he sees nothing, but he remembers one thing. I remember those are pearls that were his eyes. Now, that came in from Madame Sosostra says, this is your card, the drowned Phoenician sailor. Those are pearls that were his eyes. From Ariel's song in... Uh, in the Tempest. In the Tempest, Ariel's song is in this context. A ship has wrecked with all the uh, with all the passengers on it, and they have scattered all over the island. Among them is the king of Naples and his son Ferdinand. And Ferdinand now thinks his father is dead, and he is he is wandering around the island, uh, quote, weeping again. The king, my father's rack, which will come up in the next section, um, weeping for the fact that his father has died has drowned. And Ariel comes along to sing a little song. Full fathom five thy father lies, of his bones are coral made. These are pearls that were his eyes, nothing of him that doth fade, but doth suffer a sea change into something rich and strange. Ariel's song is the promise of transformation. The transformation depends, the engine of transformation in the tempest is the love between Ferdinand and Miranda. And so they must be brought together, and immediately after this song is sung, they are brought together. And Ferdinand and Miranda fall into love in, in the most wholesome and genuine sense. And that falling in love begins the regeneration of the world, the world on this little island. It transforms everything. Old grievances are forgiven. The past is is uh, all everything is reconciled and new life begins because these two fall in love in that wholesome way in the meanwhile the uh, limbo condition is those are pearls that were his eyes in other words that is the condition of waiting for that love to happen and then the the rebirth occurs if it cannot happen, then those are pearls that were his eyes becomes a permanent condition, a kind of blank stare, a transformation that cannot be brought to fruition because no full and genuine love between those two lovers can be experienced. So you see how Elliot is bringing this into play? Here is a man who, all, he is stuck in that, in that middle place. Neither, and she calls attention to it. She says, are you alive or not? He's in the middle place. Is there nothing in your head? And he says, but oh, 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 that Shakespearean rag. It's so elegant, so intelligent. Is there nothing in your head? Yes, there's something in my head. This little ditty. In 1912, when Elliot was in at graduate school at Harvard, there was a pop song that was quite... Uh, uh, popular 
entitled, That Shakespearean Rag. I'll read you some of its immortal lines. That Shakespearean rag, most intelligent, very elegant, that old classical drag, has the proper stuff. The line, lay on, Macduff. Des Desdemona was the colored pet. Romeo loved Juliet. And they were some lovers, you can bet. And yet, I know if they were here today, they grisly bear in a different way. And you'd hear old Hamlet say, to be or not to be, that Shakespearean rag. Here's what's important about There's a number of things important about this. Are you alive or not? And what he knows is to be alive, you have to... What this, what this Shakespearean rag says is that all of that stuff is a bunch of hokum. What really matters is getting into bed, you see. But he says, if you, now once you know that, Shakespeare's kind of good too, you see. Because you have Macbeth and Lady Macbeth and you have Desdemona and Othello, and you have Romeo and Juliet, and you have Hamlet and Ophelia, and you have all of that, you see. And what it all comes down to, finally, is just getting into bed. The grizzly bear. They grizzly bear in a different way if they were here today. This is a different day, see. We don't go through all it. So, again, leaning out. Leaning. These are things that could provide some insight into this situation. Macbeth and Lady Macbeth, Othello and Desdemona, Hamlet and Ophelia particularly, and Romeo and Juliet, no access to them. Instead, parody, making fun of them, antique, you see, withered stumps of time, ha-ha, it all really comes down to this. And even more than that, I think, are you alive or dead? He's only alive if he can see his life as one which is breaking taboos. Are you alive or dead? Oh, remember the Shakespearean... Elliot puts an extra syllable in. Remember the Shakespearean rag? Ah-ha, see? We're getting away with something. See, that's the... Look at us. We can let our hair down. We can go out and... We can break taboos. Here's what Walter Lippmann said in the preface to Morals. Lippmann's a contemporary of Elliot's. Lippmann said that, that uh, a life lived in, a, in an attack on the taboos is as dependent on the taboos as a life lived in conformity with them. And then he goes on to say, they, the taboos, provide him, the person attacking them, provide him with an objective which enables him to know exactly what he thinks he wants to do. You see that? So now we're talking about the moral taboos, the, the, the ones left over after World War I had cleared out most of them. They provide him, that is to say, the, let's use Lippmann on this poem, they provide this guy with an objective which enables him to know exactly what he thinks he wants to do. <laughs> Isn't that a wonderful way of putting it? Uh, Lippmann goes on. While the rebel is in conflict with the established nuisances, he has an aim in life which absorbs all his passion. For the smashing of idols is in itself such a preoccupation that it is almost impossible for the iconoclast to look clearly into the future when there will not be many idols left to smash. Yet that future is beginning to be our present, and it might be said that men are conscious of modernity insofar as they realize that they are confronted not so much with the necessity of promoting rebellion as of dealing with the consequences of it. The point is, he can jumpstart 
his life by pretending that there are still some taboos that he's capable of breaking. They're gone, and he can't get any real energy from breaking them anymore. And she says, her comment on all this is, what shall I do now? What shall I do? She's going to try her version of spontaneity. I shall rush out as I am and walk the street with my hair down. So, what shall we do tomorrow? What shall we ever do? The hot water at ten, and if it rains a closed car at four, and we shall play a game of chess, pressing lidless eyes and waiting for a knock upon the door. I want to take uh, <clears throat> take a risk on this one as well. The passage I read from Ezekiel concludes this way. Then he said, Son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. They keep saying, Our bones are dried up. Our hope has gone. We are as good as dead. So prophesy. Say to them, The Lord Yahweh says this, I am now going to open your graves. I mean to raise you from your graves, my people, and lead you back to the soil of Israel. Every commentary I've read on this says the hot water at 10 is the idle rich. You say, well, we'll take a bath at 10 o'clock, and if it rains, we'll take a drive at 4, uh, or the drive at 4 will have to be in a closed car if it rains, and we shall play chess and little. But it's not. Littlest Eyes is the quintessential Dantean commentary on hell. Hell is, the people at the bottom of hell uh, have lidless eyes. They weep with lidless eyes. Lidless eyes is hell. I would su suggest this is a suicide image. Hot water at 10. One of the ways of suicide is to cut your wrist and get into a hot bath. And if it rained, Rains is the burial of the dead. The renewal of the wasteland begins with the, with the rains. And if it rains, a closed car at four. Now, a closed car could be where you just stick the exhaust back in. Another suicide image. Or it could be a hearse, a closed car. The word, our word, a closed car is, a, is an ended career. The word career, same root. That is to say, it's over. A closed car at four. Hot water at ten, and if it rains, that is to say, if it comes off, then a closed car at four. A closed life, an ended career. And we shall play a game of chess, pressing lidless eyes. Now there's a casket and waiting for a knock upon the door. And you remember, it is the door that has been shut against the spirit that is the symptom of this whole problem. And now it is simply resulting in a literal suicide in which the waiting is eternal for the opening of that door. And waiting for a knock upon the door. So once again, as in section one of the poem, we're brought into hell. This all comes back into suicide, and spiritual impotence and hell. Scene quickly changes. That's an upper-class scene with leisure and the ennui and tedium of the upper-class scene. And now we're in a cockney pub. 
at closing time, and two women are talking. I should do this in Cockney. I can't do it in Cockney. When I try, uh, I end up sounding like a hillbilly, which I am. Uh, but I don't think it comes off in hillbilly. When Lil's husband got demobbed, I said, I didn't mince my words. I said, hurry up, please. It's time. Now, what, you have to see what's happening. These two women are talking, and the barkeep is trying to close the place up. So he punctuates occasionally their conversation by yelling over and saying, hurry up, please. It's time. But Elliot has worked it in beautifully. In a sense, what she said to Lil was, hurry up, please, it's time. But in a much more profound sense, that's the apocalyptic voice. The prophetic voice, the apocalyptic voice. Again, if only we could hear it. It's like the antique picture above the mantle, the picture of the transformation of Philomel. If we could access it, we would know what, what desperate situation we're in. If we could read Shakespeare in terms of our condition, we would know what desperate situation we're in. All these things are leaning out to inform us. And again, if we could hear what this barkeep is saying, then we would know what a desperate situation we're in. This is the apocalyptic voice. Hurry up, please. It's time. Hurry up, please. It's time. Remember Prufrock? There will be time. There will be time to prepare a face to meet the faces that you meet. There will be time. Da-da-da-da-da-da-da. And now it's closing time. Hurry up, please. It's time. When Lil's husband, Lil, Lilith in Jewish folklore, was, was the mother of Adam's demonic children after he left Eve, and she became murderous of children. She became a, a killer of children. And there's lots of different folklores about Lilith. And I'm not sure there's an explicit reference here, but Elliot had to pick a name. He picked Lil. Lil's husband got demobbed, which means demobilized, decommissioned from the army. The war is over. See, the thing about it is, when World War II was over, Western civilization got demobbed. The war was the mobbing of Western civilization for one last fling, and after it, it got demobbed. We all got demobbed after World War I. And the mobbing and the demobbing were two versions of the same crisis. And now we are on our own. We're demobbed. See that? Cut loose. Left to float. On our own resources. None of the rest, all of that rich tradition now no longer informs us. We have, we've become demobbed. Which is just another way of saying mobbed. Mobbed and demobbed now become synonyms. When Lil's husband got demobbed, Denis de Rougemont says, the last surviving formalities of love were swept away by the war of 1914. And we get, that's a, a version of the demobbing of, of Albert. We'll, we'll get a glimpse of Albert here in a minute. When Lil's husband got demobbed, I said, I didn't mince my words. I said to her myself, hurry up, please, it's time. Now Albert's coming back. Make yourself a bit smart. He'll want to know what you've done with that money he gave you to get yourself some teeth. He did. I was there. You have them all out, Lil, and get a nice set, he said. I swear, I can't bear to look at you. And no more can't I, I said, etc., etc. We'll come back to it. Now, remember in the first prelude scene, we saw that the woman at her table, it was synthetic perfume. But now we're, in the, we're, in the, we're on the other side of the tracks. 
it's false tea. To the same effect, you see, to the same effect. That is to say, emphasis is on the surface and uh, postponing the aging process to put the best face on it, to prepare a face to meet the faces that you meet. Even more, I think, to the point is the, is the brutality of this marriage relationship. The woman speaking says, I was there. She's talking to Lil. I was there. So what you have to picture is a, a man saying to his wife in the presence of one of her acquaintances, take this money and get some teeth. I can't stand to look at you anymore. Now, how's that for a relationship? Huh? And no more can't I, I said, and think of poor Albert. Now, the speaker is interested in poor Albert, has a concern for poor Albert. And think of poor Albert. He's, in, he's been in the army four years. He wants a good time. Now, that's what it's come to. That's what it's come to. Solovyov says erotic longing has to do with the, with the religious transformation of us. And Albert has been in the army four years. What he wants is a good time. And if you don't give it him, there's others will, I said. Oh, is there, she said. Something of that, I said. Then I'll know who to thank, she said, and give me a straight look. Hurry up, please. It's time. We Westerners discovered that if, if the erotic is losing access to its deeper levels of energy, we can combine it with rivalry and, and get a momentary uptick of the energy level. We can create the triangle. And therefore, you get the instinctive attraction of eroticism and the equally instinctive energies of the rivalry and you overlay them. And so you create what feels like desire, what feels like passion, what feels like emotion. And that happens here. Suddenly, these two women are looking at each other as sexual rivals. And that's how they remember uh, Sweeney among the Nightingale. That's how it's done. When everything becomes ennui, remember the prostitute sat on, slipped off Sweeney's knee and sat on the floor and yawned? You have to create a triangle in that situation to regenerate some kind of passion. And so it's done here. But the overall message is the, is the brutality of the relationship. If you don't like it, you can get on with it, I said. Others can pick and choose if you can't. But if Albert makes off, it won't be for lack of telling. You ought to be ashamed, I said, to look so antique. See, there it is again. And her only 31, remember she's talking to, the, to a third woman, see? And her only 31, I can't help it, she said, pulling a long face. It's them pills I took to bring it off, she said. She's, only, she's had five already and nearly died of young George. The chemist said it would be all right, but I've never been the same. You are a proper fool, I said. Well, if Albert won't leave you alone, there it is, I said. What do you get married for if you don't want children? Hurry up, please. It's time. She's had an abortion. She took pills to cause an abortion. And the only consequence of that, the only cons relevant consequence of that, was that it, uh, it aged her a little bit. She said, those pills, it's, it's those pills I took. I think what Elliot's doing is picking up on Philomel 
She and Procne killed the child and fed it to Tyrius. And also on Lilith, who becomes murderous to children. And in a larger sense, the whole question of the hostility of modern life to new birth. Now, we can say what we will about Eliot's uh, prophetic powers, uh, but there you have it. And the, and the apocalyptic voice says, hurry up, please, it's time. Well, that Sunday, Albert was home. They had a hot gammon, and they asked me to dinner to get the beauty of it hot. Hurry up, please, it's time. Hurry up, please, it's time. Uh, before we go to that last phrase, hot gammon is a, is, a, is a ham, cured ham. But it's also two other things. It's a victory at backgammon before the loser has removed a single one of the winner's pieces. And the name of this section of the poem is A Game of Chess. So that Sunday, notice it's Sunday, the day, the day of worship. That Sunday, Albert was home. And they, that is to say, he got home on Sunday. The first day he got home, and guess who gets invited? The speaker, who's already told Lil, uh, who's already insinuated heavily to Lil that uh, she's in competition for Albert if it comes to it. They invited me to dinner to get the beauty of it hot. You see the triangulation? Another thing gammon means is a misleading or nonsensical conversation. Uh, the dictionary gives the example to engage someone in gammon while someone else picks their pocket. And that's what game of chess is used. That's the way it's used in Middleton's play, Women Beware Women. It's used to distract the widow from the seduction taking place in the next room. It's a gammon. It's a gammon. So they had hot gammon. All of this is a lot of subterfuge for creating the triangle that will keep some kind of energy in the system for a little bit longer, in a system that has lost any genuine sense of eros, any genuine relatedness. Hurry up, please, it's time. Hurry up, please, it's time. Good night, Bill. Good night, Lou. Good night, May. Good night. Ta-ta. Good night. Good night. Good night, ladies. Good night, sweet ladies. Good night. Good night. And those are the last words of Ophelia as she goes to her suicide. So section two of Eliot's poem ends with the theme of meaningless marriage and suicide. Uh, both of the little uh, diptychs in section two have to do with marriage relationships which are so meaningless and brutal that the, that the specter of suicide uh, comes into play at the end of each of the little vignettes. It's a way of saying that the logical outcome of meaninglessness and alienation is self-destruction. 